but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We are back on Canadian soil. It's crazy that we were away in Italy and Spain for a couple weeks. At times it felt like three weeks. <laughs> At times mm -hmm. it felt like we were gone for just a week and then we came back and we're just back to being Canadian residents. It's weird. Yeah, it's horrible. Oh, it's horrible? Yes, being back here sucks. <laughs> well, at times... While we were away, it felt like we were still here because the weather on a couple of days was actually warmer in Toronto. Yeah, that's not what I signed up for at all. No, we checked the weather before we left. Well, I was monitoring it for months <laughs> ahead of time. And the week leading into it, it looked like it would be solid high 60s, low 70s. And then it just went to total shit. Mm. We still had a wonderful time. Yeah. Before we begin, do we want to maybe let folks know what maybe our top three moments from the trip were did you, I, I have three in did mind. you come up with three because i didn't this was like the first thing added yeah. to the agenda like what were you doing not reading the agenda <laughs> uh i have three so my three we were in in rome we were in sorrento along the amalfi and then we went to barcelona and then on to Sitges before finishing up back in rome for the tennis i can tell you that the tennis was not one of the highlights of the trip <laughs> We'll get into that. Uh, but the first one was the Trevi Fountain. It's uh, when you think of, of Rome and the historical sites, I feel like maybe the Trevi Fountain isn't one that immediately comes to mind. But it, I, really? I was just. It's one of the big ones. Oh, people seem to talk about where the Pope lives, what, the Vatican. <laughs> where, where, <laughs> where Santa Claus lives? Uh, the, the Colosseum. The, the, exactly, the Colosseum. Uh, but that's one of the big ones. Okay. Well, for me, it was number one, numero uno in Italy. In Rome, I mm. should say. It's kind of unassuming in that it's it's nestled within these streets, these tiny little streets, and you just happen upon it. Mm -hmm. And then there is just a swarm of tourists in this little tiny square. And it, it just felt like a magical place to me. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Second, we took a... We had to figure out how we we're going to get to Positano and Amalfi and, and the Amalfi Coast from Sorrento, right? And so at our hotel, the tour, the Amalfi Coast tour was booked up for the time that we were going to be there. So we couldn't do it through the hotel. You very smartly figured out a, a roundabout way we were to, where we would take a city bus tour. You know, one of those red buses that you see in these mm -hmm. big cities where, where you go, you know, look at the stuff. And it worked out for us because we were able to hop on and off in Positano and then Amalfi and then get back to Sorrento. But when we're driving through those windy roads in the hill along the coast, you're A, trying to you know stop yourself from being too nauseous. But then all of a sudden, the Mediterranean appears and the coastline of Positano appears and it was just breathtaking. I remember like you very generously gave me the window seat and I was waiting to see something and then it just appeared and I was like, uh, I turned to and just started laughing. 
And then the third was everything in Citrus. Just absolutely loved it. Yeah. If you get a chance to go to Citrus, go. And for you? I told you I didn't come up with three. Well, what did you enjoy so about my, the trip? You know, my highlights are always just kind of walking around Rome and seeing what you find. Like walking around the historic center of the city and just happening upon things that you didn't know were there. Um, One of the 15,000 fountains. Yes, the the fountain of turtles, which we came upon in uh, like the medieval section of the city near Piazza Venezia, is very cool. I love that. Yeah, I just love Rome. Rome was great, was one of my least favorite parts of the trip. I still loved it, but it, I don't I don't share the same affinity for it that you do. You spent a whole semester there, so I get it. Right. But it was a totally different feel as a vacation spot. It was a lot of work, a lot of walking. I would say a highlight is the seafood in the Amalfi Coast. That was definitely a highlight. I mean, the highlights are mostly food for me. So seafood in the Amalfi Coast. Finally had cacio e pepe in Rome. After all these years, never tried like the Roman specialty. Had tripe in Rome, carbonara, all the Roman typical dishes. You had oxtail. I'm, I'm going to help you along here because <laughs> you you also really enjoyed Barcelona. Yeah, Barcelona is gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. I like the food less. You, th- you said to me ahead of time, well, what am I going to eat there? You thought it was going to be terrible, but you still enjoyed yourself. Like, yeah. You probably tired of the tapas after a while. Mm. There were only so many patatas bravas that you could eat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to everyone who was checking in and asking how the trip was going and wishing us well. Uh, that is very appreciated. I know that, you know, when you come back from vacation, nobody wants to see your slides. So we're, we're not going to go on and on about the trip because it's more interesting for the people who are actually there, you know. We'll get to our time in Rome at the tennis in a segment one or two down the road. Mm. But to begin with, uh, a bit of a Madrid recap. It was cool for me because we were in, where were we? We were in Barcelona for a good portion of that Madrid tournament. And we were able to watch the tennis on TV the entire time, whenever Mm -hmm. we wanted. I woke up one morning, I think it was a Thursday morning, and just watched Simona Halep play Ash Barty while in bed in front of a 60-inch TV. Mm. It was amazing. Alex Correcha is very big in the Spanish tennis broadcast world. He was there for damn near every match right. <laughs> that week. At that tournament, Djokovic beat Tsitsipas in the final 6-3, 6-4. The semifinalists, Djokovic beat Team, and Tsitsipas beats Nadal. It was Nadal's... Uh, clay. Yes, it was Nadal's third consecutive semifinal loss in mm. this clay court swing, which he would then rectify in Rome. On the women's side, Kiki Burtons beats Simona Halep 6-4-6-4 in the final. The beaten semifinalists were Sloane Stevens and Belinda Bencic. You didn't you didn't know anything that was going on with this tournament. No, I didn't really care, you were to in, be honest. You were in full and vacation I, mode. I still don't care. I was trying to follow the tennis. I was like, oh, that's oh, that's cool. That's cool. You're like, mm, okay, what are we I'm doing I'm happy next? that Kiki Burtons won. I'm also happy that Simona lost, to be totally honest. Uh, Carry on. For reasons that will come later. Carry on. Jan Tyriak, her, you know, kind of adopted godfather in the sport, who she credits with kickstarting her career by giving her a wildcard to this tournament uh, six years ago, is currently suing the WTA because the WTA has enforced equal prize money at the Madrid Open. It's like, this is the guy we're, we're dealing with here. He is so upset that he has to pay equal prize money to men and women at his joint tournament that he's suing the WTA from three different countries. 
Well, this is not new news. No. The lawsuits were in direct response to Steve Simon, Simon calling uh, Tyriac out for having Nastasi at the trophy presentation in 2017. If you recall, I can't believe it's been two years already, that Fed Cup drama in mm-hmm. Romania where Nastasi uh, said and did all kinds of messed up misogynistic crap and was then subsequently sanctioned by the ITF. The WTA made a, a point of having credentials revoked for tournaments. He could be on site, but he couldn't appear in any official capacity or, you know, be, be credentialed in mm-hmm. any way. But Tyriac, being the lord of the Madrid Open, he decided that he was going to do whatever the hell he wanted. And so he had Nastasi present Simona Halep with the trophy in 2017. Steve Simon called him out on Twitter and on the WTA website saying, you know, this has cast a shadow over a great final. If you recall, uh, Simona and Mladenovic played a, a heck of a final, a three-set final, and uh, didn't mince words with calling out Tyriac in, in doing mm-hmm. this specific thing. And so Tyriac took issue, like you said, to the tune of suing the WTN Simon in three different countries. In Cyprus, in Romania, and Spain. The, the Romania one, he's claiming, or he claimed that Simon's actions caused damage to his reputation and Nastasi's reputation in Romania where they are gods, right? Mm-hmm. Gods of the sport. And that all they talked about the Romanian press for the next however long was uh, Tyriac and Nastasia and, and how they're bad for the game when in fact they should have been talking about Simona and blah, 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 blah. They also sue Simon and the WT in Spain, host country of the Madrid Open, specifically for having to pay equal prize money at the Madrid Open, which is wild to me. It's a condition of their contract. Mm-hmm. And then Cyprus is where Tyriac's company is based, right? Yes. So that's why he's suing in Cyprus. The whole, th- I mean, we know that Tyriac is one of the most repellent men in the- this entire sport. Everyone knows that. Simona's continued loyalty, and not just loyalty, but performative loyalty, is just distressing to me. It's one thing to be caught up in a situation where you're at an awards dinner and you have to sit with these people or whatever. You have to kiss the ring because you, at the end of the day, are still the biggest current sports star in Romania, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's a very, it's a family affair. You know, like, these, there's a lineage that you have to respect. I get that. Right. But, as you said, she's going out of her way to make the most of them on social media. And at this point, I can't help but think if that's not something that Tyriac is using to weaponize against the mm-hmm. WTA, especially since these lawsuits are ongoing. Like I, that that makes it a doubly bad look for me. Yeah. And if you recall, heading into this tournament, she did that that social media post where she was posing up with Tyriac and saying, like you said about mm. giving me the start six years ago, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Like if you had a care in the world about the optics of this shit, and I know optics are, are it's a fraught thing and it's it's something we try and move away from using because at the end of the day, like, in, in a lot of situations, who gives a fuck about optics? You know, like, things are what they are. But in this instance, the optics are really, really bad. Mm. Now, let's take a moment and talk about this trophy thing. Because there's more and it's because, all intertwined. Because it sounds so petty and it sounds conspiratorial. 
But for the past two years, the women have gotten a different trophy than the men. Mm-hmm. The men get that sort of spiked dildo thing. Yes. Which apparently is very valuable. Yeah. And... Tyriac refers to it as one of the most expensive trophies ever made for sport. Oh, That's a okay. quote. That's great. Tyriac, the Trump of Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, but the women for the past two years since Simona won have received this different cheap-ass tacky-ass trophy. Two different trophies. Yes. It was different last year for Petro, and it was different this Uh, year again for Kiki. Meanwhile, the men received the dildo. Yes. And after Rafa won in Rome, Madrid's Twitter account tweeted out a reminder of what happened the week before, and it's Djokovic in three pictures posing with the trophy in, or I should say being captured Mm with the trophy in some of the most phallic <laughs> positions you could ever imagine. Like, uh, I don't think you could have that those images planned any better. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what are we saying here? Well, we don't know because we're not behind the scenes in Madrid. But I would say it's highly suspect. And there's pretty good evidence pointing to the fact that the leadership of this tournament cares not very much for women's tennis unless it's Simona Halep. The, the trophy thing is like... It's just adding insult to injury because it really is like a shitty trophy. Do you think that Jan Tyriak has just decided to to do away with the trophy that he clearly thinks is very important and valuable? It's called the Jan Tyriak trophy. Oh, who wouldn't want that in right? their living room? And it still exists on the men's side. So why has it disappeared yeah. on the women's side? And why why is it I thought, well, maybe they've they've decided to go in a different direction because it was maybe too phallic and creepy looking to be giving women. I admit, that was just stupid and naive of me. Like, without being too critically engaged, mm. right? Well, you know, that option still exists out there. We can't draw the conclusion because we don't know 100%. I'm just saying it's another layer to this story. That's your... This is my, like, get out of getting sued, sued in, in Canada. Cyprus, Turkey, um, <laughs> Jordan, Poland, Algeria. I don't want to get sued in all those countries. I do not have that kind of money. But I think our point remains here is that we don't think it's accidental. I don't. I also think that this tournament is dire, and it pains me to have to cover it. Okay, so on that note, we shall move along. Mm-hmm. Moving from dire to direer. Rome. Rome was an absolute travesty as far as like logistics and organization this week. It was a wild ride from start to finish. It was supposed to be the cap on our vacation. Yeah. We were supposed to have, well, we had tickets for Tuesday and Wednesday day sessions and were to leave Rome on Thursday. So we're like, oh, this will be cute. A nice little cute end to the trip. And when we touched down in Rome, you were sleeping, but I watched Venus beat... Elise Mertens mm. in three sets. And the net result of that win was a matchup against Serena in the third round. Yeah. Serena beat Rebecca Peterson again. And again, after beating Peterson, withdrew. This happened in Miami as well. But, uh, you know, on Monday night, we were like, oh my God, on Wednesday, we're going to see Venus and Serena play each other. This is so crazy. We're going to see Venus. We're going to see Serena. We're going to see Rafa. We're going to see Roger. We're going to see Novak. We're going to see everybody on Wednesday. Right. That's what we thought. We're like, how did we get so lucky? (laughs) 
we show up on site on Tuesday. We we spend a couple of hours. You were honestly very frustrated by the experience. Yeah, and I so was not feeling well. I took and... an executive decision to move the part, move us elsewhere in Rome. Like like many things in Rome, if you've ever been there, the site was very chaotic, and it was you know just a lot of people like pushing you out of the way, and th- like this is how Rome is like. I am generally used to it, but I just wasn't feeling great and wasn't in the mood that day. And the schedule was kind of floptastic. It wasn't great. So we watched Kyrios on uh, on center court. And we, we saw watched... the first set of that. We saw the first point where he began the match with an mm-hmm. underhand serve. We saw casual queen. Sueshi. Mm-hmm. The problem with the tournament is that they sell way too many grounds passes. Yes. So you can't, like, there are fewer courts than a lot of the Masters tournaments that we've been to. So like Cincinnati and Toronto will have a way, way more smaller courts where action is going on. This really has two ticketed courts, Pietrangeli, which is gorgeous, but very difficult to get into if there's a big match going on. And then just four other courts with very, very limited seating. Not only is it limited, but it's just one area, yeah. really. Mm. And it's difficult to access. You can't access the court from multiple spots. No, there like there's one entrance, and you're sitting on like marble benches. You're I mean, sitting on concrete. Steps. There's steps. Concrete. Well, yes. Yeah, it's probably not real marble. It's not. <laughs> the whole, the site is is very beautiful, but it is like a fascist facsimile of ancient Rome. Like it's very Mussolini. That like that's what he was mm. going for. Pietrangeli, we obviously wanted to get there and spend some time on that court on Tuesday. I wanted to see Daniel Collins and Caroline Wozniacki. That's the first thing we tried to get to. By the time we finally got on court, and we were like, wow, we got we got good seats here. It was the end of the first set. <laughs> and I look up, and I'm like, why isn't it why isn't it restarting? Right. And then I look, and I see the net is being taken down. And then I was like, like oh, oh, this oh, isn't good. This is... Caroline withdrew. Yeah. So we saw zero tennis on Pietrangeli. Nice court, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we then we saw Nick for a set and then we went to courts one, two, three, four, that little stretch there and mm. sat and watched like an hour of tennis before leaving. And then Wednesday was completely rained out the entire day. Okay, so here's why people were upset. It started raining very early in the morning. People thought they were gonna have a few hour window before the rain started. But the you know, the forecast was wrong. It was raining from very early. And it did not stop. All literally did not stop all day. So they keep extending, you know, play not before twelve thirty, play not before one thirty, when it's clear that the rain is not forecast to stop at all. And I don't even think they called the day session until around six thirty or seven PM. Correct. Right? So people are mad. A lot of people I'm sure stuck around hoping to see I mean Roger was first up on center court. So as soon as the rain stopped, they were going to shuffle in Roger. So I'm sure a lot of people stuck around for him. Players were upset. Dominic team, especially, which is so unusual to he see him complaining min- he publicly. He did not mince words at all. He's like, to you know, to make them wait around all day is crazy. Plus, there was a Lazio football game next door at night. So as players were trying to leave that night, they were also fighting with soccer traffic. And it's not an area very well served by public transportation. No. Like, there's buses that go there, but there's no subway. Uh, You know, try to get a taxi. 
in the rain during a soccer game? No. We tried to get a cab on our way out of the tournament at around, what, 3 in the uh, afternoon yeah. on Wednesday? That was impossible. We walked 20, 25 minutes in the right. rain back to the hotel. And we were lucky that we were staying, like, that close. So Wednesday was a disaster. Not only was Wednesday a disaster, but we're still waiting to find out how we can get our refund mm. on our tickets. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to be waiting, like, a long time. Uh, I mean... Keep in mind too that this is the this is the the tournament and the tournament director who, unprompted, came out and told us that he had doubled the ticket prices for Wednesday day session, because Federer was going to be playing. Yeah. So and so now he has to refund these doubled ticket prices, which explains to me why they took so long to cancel the the day session. Of course, they stood to lose a lot of money that they had gouged out of people. Um, so the tournament director announced that, what, on Monday? Like, it was it was well before the forecast came out. Uh, nobody asked. Like, mm-hmm. he was boasting, you know, we doubled the, the ticket prices for Roger. And people are so excited. And consider it a gift to the folks who have already bought their tickets. <laughs> like, okay, okay, thank you so much. Can you imagine? We paid, what, 78 euro for our tickets Can, for Centrale. Can you imagine paying $160 to and, go through right. that mess? To be standing under like an inch of cover outside of Centrale being molested by people's umbrellas. <laughs> like I was touched in places by objects I don't even know oh. what they were that day. It was, yeah. it was not a fun experience. So it really unfortunately, wasn't. we did not get a great impression of the Rome Masters. I think on another day, maybe we, we could have had a wonderful time. But we did meet Ido, a listener of the show, who reached out to us and asked if, you know, we had time to meet up, and that was awesome. We also caught up with Steph in the U.S. and her mom. So it was great to catch up with them, and that's really all we did on Wednesday. Yeah. Was hang out with tennis Twitter people. We stood in the rain for about an hour before we dispersed. Yeah. But all of that set up one of the wildest schedules you will ever see at a Masters Mm -hmm. event on Thursday. Nearly every single singles player left in the draw had to play twice on Thursday if mm-hmm. they wanted to advance. So Roger, at 38 years old, 37? 37. 37, had to play twice, had to come back against Borna Chorich. Save match point. And win. Uh, Rafa notched two bagels in a day. Rafa, Rafa played two matches and lost two games. <laughs> it was very efficient. Yes. Um, One of which was against Basilashvili, which was quite the result, I think. Yes, I agree. Novak played twice. Uh, there were a few shockers from that day. Kiki Mladenovic beat both Belinda Bencic, the Madrid semifinalist, and Ash Barty at night to advance. Barty that crazy really Thursday. easily, 6-3-6-2. Yeah. That was, uh, that was something. Joanna Conta, who has an insanely good record against American players randomly beat Sloane Stevens, a, another semifinalist from Madrid, and Venus on the same day. Serena was uh, just kicking it, hanging out with Olympia, eating some more pizza before she left, blissfully above the fray on Thursday. You mentioned that the tournament sells way too many grounds passes. I can't imagine what that must have been like on site to try and get to matches on courts one through four on Thursday because... Yeah. There must have been so many people on the grounds. On that Thursday, they were selling tickets for two two day sessions. 
one that ran from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then a second day session. Yeah. And the folks who had tickets for for the Wednesday night session were able to come in for the first day session on Thursday, if I'm right. Yeah. So I guess in an attempt to not, you know, pay that many refunds, they were allowing people who had Wednesday tickets to come to this first kind of like day session 1A, which they would, you know, they would try to squeeze in two matches early in the day. So Roger would play first, obviously, because he was first out on Wednesday. And then they would start another day session and then the regular night session. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine, like, we, so we saw the Rome Masters on a relatively smooth day on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely wild, like chaotic. For us, maybe that was just... (laughs) Or stupidity okay. or naivety or whatever. But Can you imagine it on a day like that? On a day like that where the first day session, say they, they have tickets to Centrale, right? But they don't have to leave the grounds all day. No. They can camp out on courts well, one to four. They're like supposed to. They, but who's, will they? Who's going to tell them to leave? Exactly. So you have multiple sessions of people trying to watch tennis on courts one to four. Like, I, I don't know what that must have been like. We were on a plane. And we were kind of happy to be on a plane <laughs> at that point. I think the ideal spot to be on that Thursday was Grandstand. Yes. Because our friend Steph had really good seats on Grandstand and got to see Rafa up close. And some Grounds Pass people could also just camp there. Like if you got there early enough, you didn't need a reserved seat on Grandstand. That was the ticket. Like that was one of the best tickets in all of tennis that day. As for the winner of the men's tournament in Rome... We'll let you hear from him yourself. What happened in Monte Carlo happened, and what happened in Barcelona happened, and what happened in Madrid happened. And here we are. We're in Rome. And here we are. At the end of Rome. <laughs> and Rafa Nadal is the champion. The ninth time he's won in Rome. And he avoided heading into Roland Garros for the first time in his career without a singles title on the year. In that final... He played Novak Djokovic. And uh, to say that the stakes on this match were high, I don't think is an understatement. (laughs) We are prone to hyperbole in this sport as commentators of this sport a lot. It's something that we fall victim to quite often. Mm. It's something we try to avoid. But I think this was important, not just for Rafa, but for Nole as well. It was very... In a way. Yeah. You know, Novak won Madrid, obviously... Even in the years when Rafa has seemed very dominant on clay, Novak has snatched these titles from him. You know, he's beaten Rafa in clay finals in many before. Um, He's won Monte Carlo. He's won basically all the big clay titles. So Novak beating Rafa in one of these Masters events is not in and of itself shocking or even a a bad omen for for Rafa's Roland Garros chances. But the fact that he came in here with no titles three straight semifinals, losing to Tsitsipas. I mean, like, it had been kind of team and Djokovic, right? Like, those were the people who could beat him on clay consistently. But he lost to Fonini, he lost to Tsitsipas. It, uh, it was clearly something that needed to build. But it wasn't, it wasn't super shocking losses. That he would lose to Fonini is not that shocking. No. Fonini is somebody who's and beaten him pattern. before. Tsitsipas is clearly getting better by the day. And he also beat Rafa at altitude in Madrid. Yes. So they're mitigating factors, but... Oh, oh you sound like Tsitsipas now, making excuses. <laughs> <laughs> but 
it was clear that Rafa wanted to continue his progression of good feelings heading into Roland Garros. Mm. And he said he wasn't concerned about the fact that he hadn't won a title. What happened there? What happened there? What happened there? You know, but his takeaway was that, I, yes, I'm losing those matches, but I'm still feeling better about my game progressively. And we saw that and then some in that first set against Novak. Some would argue, I don't know if we would, that Novak was depleted in that final by the uh, back-to-back three-set marathons that he played first against Del Potro in the quarterfinals and then against Schwartzman, mm-hmm. a resurgent Schwartzman in the semifinal. But it was the first time in their, what, 50-something matches that they've played that either had scored a bagel set against the other. Mm-hmm. And it was a 41-minute first set, and Rafa was in complete control from the start. So coming into it, Novak had, of course, that split semifinal. He played the second semifinal of the day on Saturday. His match was a lot longer than Rafa's. So his fans would argue that he was hugely disadvantaged. And I'm not a big fan of the split semifinal scheduling anyway, regardless of who it is. But he could have won those matches in straight sets, right? Theoretically. That was on his racket. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, he was the one who was out there for three hours or whatever, playing three set matches. Of course, he had to play Del Potro, who's always going to do that to him. It is a fact that heading into that final, Rafa had only lost 13 games from eight sets. And at the end of the tournament, he had only lost 18 games from 11 sets. That's averaging less than two games lost Mm -hmm. per set. Yeah, That's so crazy. This was like the typical Rafa on clay dominant performance that you see in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. Like it's just happened a little bit later this year. And because he pulled out in, what was it, Miami, this knee injury flared up again. I was concerned because he starts the clay season very strongly. So it was going to be like a different look to see him try to rev up throughout the season. He seemed very ornery and press. Like, he's tired of asking these, answering these questions. He said multiple times, this is the last time I'm going to answer this question. He just has seemed a little bit pissy lately. That's been Rafa for years now in press. <laughs> this is not new. We've it's seen it personally in, yeah. at Cincinnati. I was concerned that we'd head into Roland Garros in a situation where we had shades of 2015. Where if somebody is to beat Rafa on clay at Roland Garros... I didn't want it to be against a Rafa that's not as at his best. Was that the year that Novak like hammered him? In the in quarterfinals, the quarters? yes. Okay. I believe so. I could be wrong, but I believe so. And it seems that if somebody's going to beat Rafa over five sets at Roland Garros, they will have to bring their best game this time around, mm-hmm. which is where I wanted it to be. Right, right. So, you know, moving on from this final, I don't... I'm not prepared to like make a, oh, these are my three favorites for the Roland Garros title, but I think that Novak and Rafa are clearly up there. I, don't, I can't even really decide between the two, because Novak was clearly not at his physical best in this final, and he was still able to snatch a set from Rafa, which was a little bit concerning, because there were, he was doing a lot of things poorly. Yes, Rafa still rebounded to win the third set 6-1. Yeah. What we saw was, I think, a bit of the mental aspect of tennis coming to play in that second set. Mm-hmm. For me, thinking about the match the day before, I found it crucial 
that Rafa get off to a good start. In that Australian Open final, he got bulldozed because there was nothing he could do, despite how well he had played that tournament, if you recall. Yeah. Rafa, with the history of, of recent losses to Novak, couldn't stem the tide early on, and so Novak had that momentum throughout. And you, you see a lot in the last couple of years that their matchups are very mental. Yes. And so Rafa stood his ground right off the bat and was able to boss his way through that first set. Not just in terms of the mental aspect, but the actual tennis that he was playing. We saw the return of the fear hand, the fearsome forehand of Rafa being able to hit down the line at will whenever he wanted. Being able to pass with precision, the reliance on the backhand as the staple of his game. What we saw in the second set was a little bit more timidity, which is which is the part that was a little bit concerning, right? Because there were moments he had triple break point to put Novak away in that second set and he didn't he didn't capitalize. Then he had on the subsequent Novak service game break point again, which he wasn't able to do, and then at four five serving he loses serve to lose his set six four. Mm-hmm. But this is also what Novak does extremely well, and it's why he has like a piece of everybody's mind. The possum, out there. possum business. No, and I'm not even framing it like that. It's like he clearly was compromised, but you can never fully count him out. Like he can always find another gear. So if I'm Rafa and I've lost to him so many times and haven't been very successful against him recently, I can be on the other side of the net and say like. Okay, he was just bageled in the first set. But if I don't win the second set, I'm in serious trouble. Like, this guy can find a second or third or fourth gear. And that sounds like a cliche, but it's not because we've seen it so many times from Novak. And despite the fact that they both play very slowly, a 41-minute bagel first set is a little bit heartening for Djokovic. (laughs) Because Rafa is playing out of his mind... And still, you're in a lot of these rallies, in a lot of these games, mm. you're just not winning them. Yeah. See, I think Novak is still in great shape going into the French because he did a lot of things really badly in this final. And he still managed to win a set. Did you see how many drop shots that just went into the net? Yes. Like, it wasn't even that they were poorly timed or that Rafa could have reached them. They didn't even make it over the net for them to be reached. There were Joko smashes that almost bounced before the net. Yeah. And the Joko smash, I felt, has been a little bit overstated because it's gotten so much more reliable in the past few years. But it was it was back in this match. Stefanos Tsitsipas is, uh, continues to be kind of a confounding personality. Points to, to marks in the clay that are like five feet away from the actual mark. I don't know if he's blind or if he's... <laughs> like a bad sport. I don't I, know if like, he's blind. I really can't tell with him. Like, is he 100% sincere or is there like a sinister quality to him? Rafa joked a couple weeks back that he wouldn't want to play against Tsitsipas in juniors with him calling his own lines. Uh, and he said, well, yeah. I'm joking, I'm joking. But like, it's it's a thing at and this point. And was he saying it because the kid literally cannot see the lines or because he's purposely pointing to the wrong marks? And that's that's where I am with Tsitsipas. Or is he being coached to be a shitstirer by his coach, Patrick Maratoglu, who thinks that that's the savior <laughs> method for mm. tennis? I think Stefanos gets egged on a bit by his father, too. You know, you can see that in the stands. We saw the 
crazy coaching that was going on from Daddy Tsitsipas in that semifinal. Mm. It was plain as day. Again, yeah. a legacy of stuff to look at from last year's US Open. Like, this stuff happens all the time. Selective yeah. enforcement or not. Now, the women's side was decidedly much more low-key because it had some surprise semifinalists. Simona Halep wasn't there. You know, Serena had pulled out. We had Joanna Conta have an incredible day on that Thursday after the rained-out session and then reach all the, all the way to the final. She beats Vondrasova and then beats current clay queen Kiki Burtons in the semifinals mm. to get to the final. That's a huge win. Kiki Burtons won Charleston last year. She made the final of Madrid last year, losing to Petro. You asked me in like successive weeks, how is she possibly number two after this tournament? How is she ranked so high? Uh, yeah. Where are her points coming from? Well, she made the final in Madrid last year, and what does she do? She bests it this year. Mm-hmm. She won Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So she's one, she's one of the most consistent players across all surfaces. So Joanna Conta has been, I mean, for lack of a better word, irrelevant for a while. Right? Like, she's stuck around. Except for the stuff that she's saying off court. <laughs> right, but as as a player, like, she hasn't really made a lot of noise in the past, you know, year or so. In almost two years, her last best really good result was the semis at Wimbledon in mm. 2017 mm. against Venus, where Venus body served her to death. Yes, she had a great grass season yes. that year. The winner of that final was Karolina Pliskova, again showing her multi-surface prowess. Previously, she's won Stuttgart on clay, but then detractors would say, well, that was indoors, different surface, the, the surface playing more fast or whatever. But this is Rome. This is a mm-hmm. slower clay court. Yeah, higher bounce. Uh-huh. Like, she's able to play on all these surfaces now. Petra Kvitova was asked recently what it is about her game, what has she done to be able to play so well on all surfaces now because she's had good results on clay. And I think that that's appropriate to apply to Pliskova as well. Like, these women have realized that in this day and age, it's not enough to just be good on one surface. And Kvitova said, well, what am I supposed to do other than try to get better? I can't take the attitude that I'm not good on the surface and so I'm just not going to try. I'm going to make the effort to to have better results. And they have. We've obviously seen the decline of specialists on on basically every surface, but clay court especially. Like, aside from Kiki Burtons, who we envisioned as a clay court specialist, but then went on on to win Cincinnati on hard courts, Um, Laura Ziegemund was maybe a clay court specialist. But they don't really exist anymore. And so top players can make small adjustments. They need better than average movement, maybe. Or in Pliskova's case, just to improve your movement, period. It's much improved. It is. Kvitova's improvement, in a lot of ways, her biggest improvement is her movement Mm. as well. We kind of pigeonhole these big hitters as just being able to blast their way to victory. But... I would Especially say... Especially yeah. these two women have made great strides. Naomi Osaka as well. She's had improved Absolutely. results on clay. And the, the common thread throughout all of this is improved movement. But yeah. The fact that Naomi is so young and she's improved so much that, you know, the sky's the limit with her. Pliskova's movement at one point was bad. And now it's, it's much, much better than it was. Victoria Azarenka, another positive, solid week for her. 
she starts off the event uh, winning the very first winning on the very first night session, and then comes back the next night to beat Elena Svitolina, the two-time defending champion in Rome, in three sets. Huge win. Mm-hmm. That is a big, big win. Eventually making the quarterfinals after beating Muguruza, who had to retire in her second match on the Thursday, the mm-hmm. Super Thursday. Eventually losing in three sets to Pliskova. Barty, Azarenka then sticks around with Ash Barty and goes on to win the doubles title. The other player of note on the women's side this week in Rome was Maria Sakari. Sakari made it to the semifinals before losing to the champion, Pliskova. She also won Rabat earlier this year. Not just earlier this year, a couple weeks ago, both on clay. Oh, right, sorry. Earlier this month? Yes, she's had a very good clay court season so far. Mm. Up to a new career high inside the top 30. The first Sakari fever happened around Cincinnati last year. She had a good summer run Mm. and then struggled a bit the rest of the year and then into the early parts of this year, and now she's back. Oh, I think one of the reasons she's exciting is because she cuts a very striking figure, like with with the bun, with the shoulder, her incredible shoulders. I don't mean to objectify her, but that's... And her she, personality. She doesn't she, look like anybody out there, right? She is a great personality on the WTA yeah. tour. We're seeing little breadcrumbs left here and there that possibly her and Tsitsipas could be a thing. There <laughs> are a lot of etceteras both from the Rome tournament and elsewhere. Jerzy Janovic. Do you remember him? Uh, I, I'm i not sure I know her. She's t- she's very tall, you know, right? This guy had people feeling bad for him because his career has been so beset by injuries. Mm-hmm. I felt, you know, I felt like his career had been upended unfairly, and it was just a sad story. And then he's got to do some bullshit like this. And then come to find out, he was just severely attacked by the mirror once he looked into it listen i feel no 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 way bad mm. about saying something like that because this is some really vile shit that he well, did it's this so, week it's so unnecessary apropos of nothing yanovich posted a photo on his social media of two men kissing and captioned it in polish which has been translated as everything is great but it's too much for me with like a lot of disgusted grossed out emojis like a few barfing emojis yes. as well and Mind it's, you, like, this, it's like, who who asked you? Who even remembers you? What? No, also, but, but why did you go out of your way to post this when literally nobody asked? Also, this happened on the Eurovision telecast. Mm. It was a big deal that this happened broadcast to millions of people around the world. There are all these tennis Twitter folks holed up on their computers <laughs> watching Eurovision. Yeah. Like this, this show has incredible reach. And this was a big deal. And there's Mr. Yanovich acting a damn fool. And a reminder again. So unnecessary. A reminder again that the, the, the homophobia on the ATP tour is always just lurking around the corner. And in regular life. Yeah, right. Just this casual homophobia. Right. Meanwhile. It's, no, but it's so upsetting. I have to go back to it. Okay. It's annoying because, like, nobody asked him about it. It's not like... He was in an interview and they were like, what did you, what do you think about this? It was like he was watching TV and he saw something that so disgusted him or amused him. I don't, or both, that he felt he had a post about it. It's often intertwined with these straight men. Like they don't know how to grasp their true feelings about things. Mm -hmm. And so like they, they defer to, to humor and like laughing at stuff. And the best way that they can express it is through this vile stuff. 
Now, David Ferrer, on the other hand, posted a supportive message on the International Day Against Homophobia, which I have to say was very surprising yeah. to me. I mean, because Ferrer is one of the ones who has been kind of a misogynistic pig throughout his career. Yeah, he hasn't really been the most evolved, I would say. I, It is curious that he waited till he retired to show any sort of mm-hmm. support. That was mentioned um, in a quote tweet uh, mm. from Janina from Reels Tennis Fans Podcast. Oh, uh, she made that point, and it's absolutely valid, because yeah. especially since the timing of it came so soon after his retirement. <laughs> but at the same time, just like when Bautista wore those laces and shoes in support of the parade, these little run-of-the-mill casual gestures of support mean something. They do, because they also become normal. Mm-hmm. Right, so like when Laura Robson wore the rainbow thing on her arm in at Margaret Court right? Arena, like these things build up and they become just our our reality, and that's what people like Yanovich are afraid of mm-hmm. that it becomes so normal that it's it's unavoidable. It might not even be that sinister. It might just be so. If I'm to be charitable here, it might just be so unusual to him that he doesn't know how to process it. Mm-hmm. If I'm being super charitable. Well, part of our job is to make it not unusual for him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tweeted that, you know, it, this incident with Ferrer puts into perspective just how rare this happens with ATP players. Think about how just how much they tweet, they Instagram, how much time they spend on social media talking and sharing about random shit. We have Denis Shapovalov like, running through stores in masks. You know, like just crazy stuff. He's rapping all over the place, not to pick mm. on him, but all these players are on social media all the time, and gay people are everywhere. It never, uh, they probably have a lot of gay people in their lives as well. I'm sure they're mm. like Kevin Anderson, but like, he said that one of the reasons why he was prompted to speak was because he had a gay cousin. Yeah. But like, where were his social media little things like that five years ago? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, does it always have to take a family member? Why are you just not... I mean, the point is, like, people are allowed to evolve. And, you know, we can wait until they evolve to embrace them. But also, tennis players are so completely self-involved because that's what it takes to to succeed at this level. Like, their entire universe is built around them. And Vika Azarenka, in a different context, talked about this earlier this week. About before, like, before she was a mother, she lived only for tennis. And really only for herself. Like her whole team existed to to build her up, to make her the best she could be. And now tennis is like a job. In the same way, uh, I mean, people trying to achieve on like a global level are just, for the most part, in tennis at least, not not trying to deal with all that extra stuff. They, de- they think of this as extra. No, but what I'm saying, it's not extra stuff. I understand. It's not. It's, it's but different. But for it's them, totally, it's outside of their existence. No, but it's and totally. It's, like, it's to, I feel like that's giving people a pass here. It's totally different from folks being asked about it in press, and then they're like very hesitant, or being asked about it in press with respect to Margaret Court, and then giving a good answer that we would deem a good answer. Mm. It's not unusual for people, even in sport or in other fields that are high pressure, whatever, as you described it to have an opinion or talk about something even remotely gay on their social media mm. in this day and age. It's, what I'm saying is it's that that unusual uh, yeah. on the ATP, that nobody does it. 
proactively. That's true. That, that was my point. Can... Like people get asked about and they respond. And we've had quite a few people respond positively to questions being asked of them. But this is one of a very select few instances. I can count on less than five fingers the times that I've seen mm. it where somebody has said or done something unprompted. Andy Moore is one of the biggest champions of everybody in the world. But has how many times, I could be corrected here, but how many times has he said or done something in support of gay folks unprompted? Yes, he's hired Emily Moresmo. Yes, he's a big champion of women's sport and all these all these things. And this is, this is not to put him down, but has he done a post like that? Right, but I think that like those actions are in many ways more important. Yes. You know? They, I would not disagree with that. I'm not trying to undercut what Andy Murray has done. I'm just saying even for him, that type mm. of stuff doesn't even seem to register. Maybe he uses his social media differently. I don't know. I'm just not willing to be inured to this kind of thing and to not give Ferrer his proper due for doing this mm. because it is that rare. That's my point. Okay. You may have heard that Nick Kyrgios <laughs> gave an interview to Ben Rothenberg at No Challenges Remaining. He had a week. That, I mean, Nick dominated the news cycle for a lot of this week. From the very for, first point of his first match. For worse to worse. He, you know, he gave a very candid interview to Ben. Talked about himself. He talked about his opinions on other players. It was interesting to a point. And Ben, to his credit, was able to get Nick to open up in ways I, I don't think anyone expected. But uh, in ways that Ben didn't even expect. I think that yeah, uh, I think Nick came ready to spill the tea. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't want to talk about the content of the interview too much because it's been rehashed and people have written articles about it. And I think if you are a podcaster, like your content should stand on its own, mm-hmm. like it's yours. So listen to the podcast basically <laughs> i don't want to steal that content i saw so many people transcribing it without crediting it yeah. on twitter that and, was wild to me but also uh legitimate corporate news sources in different countries lifting entire paragraphs from the podcast and just reprinting it like it like it's just open open source because corporate news media has not figured out how to get interviews like that in, in some contexts, right? I mean, in this case, you just have to let somebody rag on you for years on uh, Twitter. Uh, right. Ben and Nick have had this supposed beef for years, but it's really more of like a playful, you know. Nick is a According bro. to Nick. I don't believe Nick it. Nick is a bro, right? So he he's a basketball dude. Like, he likes chirping back and forth. Like, that's his thing. Mm. Ben has indulged it. And I think that's why he was able to get this kind of discussion. Because yeah, well, he's been like a good sport about it. When Ben, when Nick said that it's not a beef, I don't buy that. Because I went back and read some of the stuff. And some of the stuff was, whether or not you feel it's warranted or not, was oh. not in a playful tone. Right, so but whatever why, I call bullshit on But that. why would he sit down with him because if he hated Nick, him? Nick you know? gives, I wouldn't say hate, but Nick gives zero fucks. That's what's clearly. That's what's coming mm. to <laughs> the biggest light for me with this entire week. Nick gives zero fucks about everything, especially tennis mm. related, for yeah. better or worse. You may think that's a bad thing, or you might think that that's refreshing, but I think that's where he is in his life. Mm-hmm. And where where I am is that I'm super not interested in psychoanalyzing him. No, I don't care. Like 
I'm not going to say, oh, he needs help. He needs to talk to a therapist. Like, that is not my place. I'm not a professional in that arena. I'm just bored. I'm bored. I'm bored by him not caring. If he wants to throw tantrums, like, that's fine. It's just, it's not something that is going to take up a lot of real estate in my brain. I am so sick of the outrage surrounding well, it. Well, same thing. That is also something I'm not going to waste my time like on. Like this whole business about needing to do community service for throwing a chair <laughs> or a table, a small table, a small plastic table and onto the court. Community service. And that's that's only because Brad Gilbert indulged this quacky human behavior expert, supposedly, who said, you know, it would be good if he could like work construction or a manual labor for six months and learn, you know, what the real world is like. And Jesus. that upset me so much <laughs> because like working class people don't do their job because it builds character. They do their job because they have to, and it because the they have to survive, right? It is not like construction is not a retreat for wealthy people to gain character. It's just not. If Nick doesn't want to play tennis, he doesn't have to. If he sustains a ranking good enough to get into these tournaments, then he is entitled to play. Period. If like, he that's treats it. playing tennis as strictly a job, one that he does not like, that's his business. If he had thrown the chair exactly. and hit somebody, that's a different situation. Exactly. Like, players have thrown rackets and damn near decapitated ball kids and fans before. Decapit- someone was decapitated? Damn near oh. decapitated. <laughs> And we don't frame it in the same way, mm. you know, and there's this business of trying to cumulatively punish him. This business of the Shanghai incident a few years ago, he was punished for that. The time is served. Like you can't, you can't piggyback off of no, that. No, but listen, this is... People the... wanted to piggyback off of the NCR interview. So like, well, well he Brad. behaved like that yesterday. And so like with this today, we need to send him to Rikers Island. But this is the discourse of criminality that surrounds someone like Nick, who has all these signifiers of blackness and brownness. And thugness. And so y- you want to institute this, like, three-strike rule. Mm-hmm. It's like a few years ago he did this, plus he did this last month, plus he did this this month. So now he belongs in jail. He belongs mm-hmm. in tennis prison. Serena threatened to kill Chino. She did this three years ago. Mm-hmm. She did that five years ago. And now this time... Meanwhile, right. the lumberjack chair chopper is able to laugh about everything that she right, does. Right, that happened at this very tournament. Yeah. So Roger Federer... Well, let's go back to the default, because we haven't really talked about it. I think it was the day after the, that interview was released. The, the interview was released on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, it must have been Thursday, Nick was defaulted. Yes, Yes, because we were traveling that yeah. day. Nick was defaulted from the Rome tournament. He was upset with a fan because fans were constantly moving during his service motion. And we know from being there on the outside courts, people are always moving. It like it's just it's very small, it's very intimate, and the enforcement maybe is not always there. So conceivably that could have happened. They're dressed very nicely. They oh my god. Like some dude they told me to are. like sit down because the play was about to start and I was about to get mad cuz like they hadn't even called time yet. But then he was so well-dressed. I was just like, well, okay. <laughs> so he was upset, and he started yelling at a fan. He, The umpire immediately called a code violation for unsportsmanlike conduct, 
And at that point, it was a game penalty. Apparently, he called a fan an effing R word, which <laughs> I don't even want to repeat. It's so bad. Like, it's really bad. And so he was called for the game penalty, smashed his racket, went over to his chair, lifted up that little side table, and launched it across the court. Immediately, the umpire said, referee to court, that's a default. When the umpire says that, that's an automatic default. We've already passed the game penalty. That's the next step. So the fact that Nick walked off has no bearing on, you know, he didn't forfeit. He, he had already been defaulted, period. The thing is, who cares? Like, if this, if this is how he wants to act, and clearly there are people in his camp who have enabled this type of behavior for a long time, it's just not that interesting to me. I'm not angry about it. I'm nothing about it. I'm totally neutral about it. And the the ever level-headed Roger Federer said, well, who did he hurt? The table? <laughs> like, it was so perfect. It was just, there are, you know, there are processes in place when this sort of thing happens. Mm -hmm. So he was saying, just let it take its course. Why are you trying to legislate new punishments? It was I was very impressed by Federer yes. with that question because it showed his his wiles as the emperor of tennis mm -hmm. at this point. Because I don't think there's a lot of I'm... love lost between the two, personally. Okay. My point is, he was asked the question, Federer, as a presumption that Nick would be suspended. It was like, well, that was... I don't know if you heard about what was going on, but how, how long do you think... Kira should be suspended mm -hmm. for. Not if he should be suspended. Yeah. That was... I don't know who asked it. That was a terrible question. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, those are the things you learn on, like, day two of journalism school. It's a leading question. Because no one had decided there would be a suspension. So why are you asking how long this supposed suspension should be? A far beat from me to put myself in a position to be clapped back on by a great of a sport <laughs> and for the audio to go around the world like that would not be me <laughs> could not any thoughts about what he said in the interview about well, stuff he said about rafa really. novak roger I mean, he did imply subtly that there was <laughs> can i even say the word he implied that there was doping going yes on. you can say it. yes he clearly implied it a lot of mm. folks this was the most incredible part about that whole thing for me. Yeah. Was that it It just oh, highlighted the problems with the fandom right. so greatly. So like each each fandom of each big three were mad about something. Mm -hmm. He was mostly nice to Roger. I think he, he likes Roger and he respects him quite a bit. But he implied quite clearly that the big three were doping. Yes. And it was he kind of flew through it. But the fandoms missed that, and they globbed on to. But how do you how do you what, miss that? It was he, crazy. They globbed to me. on to like, oh my god, he says that Novak needs to be loved, and it's embarrassing, and it's cringy to watch for him, or that Nadal is not gracious to his opponents. Like, who care? I just I'm at this point where it's like, I may be part of one of these fandoms, or at one point was. Like, I don't care. Why, like, why are you letting this person rile you up so much when that is clearly the goal? He's a troll. <laughs> and that's that on that. <laughs>
this feels like it happened so long ago. There was more stuff with the ATP board. Mm -hmm. If you recall, we thought that we'd be having the Justin Gimmelstab stuff be a big issue while we were in Rome. That was resolved because Gimmelstab resigned from all these various things, the ATP board, as well as Tennis Channel. But there was still the, the decision to be made in Rome on the Tuesday to replace him. Who was going to be the candidate chosen to replace Gimmelstab as the representative from the ATP Players Council on the ATP board? And Novak Djokovic was asked about this in press, I believe on the Monday, or after his first match, or whenever. No, it was, it was perfect timing, because they typically do press availability on Monday, and the vote was scheduled to take place later on that same day, and Novak ha- has gotten tired of answering these questions about the Players' Council and the board. Mm-hmm. It was a busy week for Ben Rothenberg. <laughs> Between the nine-minute exchange with Novak Djokovic and then the interview... Nine minutes. The interview in with Nick Kyrgios. He was that bitch that caused all this conversation yeah. this week. A lot of press conferences don't even last nine minutes, but Novak's exchange with Ben Rothenberg itself was mm. that long. Interesting, if you watch the video, you can tell, you, you can't see the ATP person in the, sh- in the shot, mm-hmm. but you can tell multiple times the ATP person is like, this is not happening. And Novak is like, I want to answer that yeah. question. Yeah. Give him back the mic. I'm going to dig my hole and try and dig myself out of it again, repeatedly. So Novak said, I feel that I've been exposed way too much for being president of the council and having that role. Everyone holds me accountable for every single thing that happens in tennis at the moment, which I think is unfair because I'm not the only one there. He, you know, a lot of the top players who have served in this capacity have left the council disillusioned for that same reason, because they feel a lot of responsibility has been placed at their feet and they're tired of answering for it for Mm -hmm. the entire governing structure of tennis. So I get that. However, he, along with others, have clearly came in spearheading a, a mandate of change. He and other people decided not to renew the contract of Chris Kermode. There was clearly like a greater, he had a, a, a bigger vision for the future of the ATP and he's been vocal about it. So I don't think it's entirely unfair to, to ask him about it. And the nature of tennis media is that you generally get asked the same questions over and over again. Mm. And it, it just so happens that this is a, a very loaded and political question. There are three things at play here. There was the Justin Gimmelstab thing hovering over this entire thing, which Novak did not engage with specifically. Mm -hmm. So when he's telling Ben that he's being misrepresented or you're serving your own narrative and causing all this drama, Novak did not tell us specifically how he felt about Gimmelstab in a way that was satisfactory to most folks. Right. And also, he went on to say about, oh, well, you don't really understand the structure of how this thing works. Like, we're just the council. People are then representing us on the ATP board. And even if they carry our vote, they can still be overruled two to one. Well, the issue here is that the person who was representing you was Justin Gimmelstab, and that was never dealt with properly. And you never gave a satisfactory response to that. It was a stain on tennis. It continues to be a stain on tennis. It continues to represent a whole lot of ills within the many organizational structures of tennis, right? This man was a cancer in many ways. And in the way in which he was a cancer for the ATP board, 
with respect to his relationship to the council, that was not answered for properly. Right? Mm -hmm. And so when you say that, well, we can say what we want, but it's not really up to us, I still want to know specifically what it is that you think about that specific situation. I know that he's not in the fray and we're choosing somebody to replace him. The question about what is it, what it is that you're looking for in somebody to be that person, it's valid. So to then be immediately defensive about it and be flailing all over the place, giving all these woes me type things, it's not direct to the point. Hmm. Like you're accusing Ben of not being direct to the point and being tangential and saying all these things that are misguided, misrepresentative. You're getting sources from players on the council. What are they? We're talking in all these vagaries. But you yourself are not being specific about many things. It was a very frustrating watch for mm -hmm. me. And, you know, the thing is, it is not a journalist's job to be friends with players. And too many journalists are a little too friendly with players. This, is, so this, is, this is Ben's problem too, right? Because then the next day you have this interview with Kyrgios, which comes off as buddy-buddy. Mm. But at the same time, you have this... Uh, Inter this very serious interview where your journalistic hat is on right. that is then in some ways liked or not undercut by this mm. podcast interview. Fair enough. Right? And so like yeah. this is his continuing problem in like the mind's eye of a lot of tennis fans mm. and folks on tennis Twitter and I'm sure Ben will say he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, and that that's his uh, his want and that's totally fair for him. Or whatever, right? But like, it is what it is at this point. Mm. And Novak can play on that in that situation. Right. But I, the watching the Novak interview, you get, I don't know, maybe it's just me. You just get a sense like it was a little bit bratty. You know, tennis players and a lot of athletes are not used to journalists asking questions that are difficult. Because sports media is so, it's just a different world, right? A lot of the journalists are fans or they cover it as a beat and it's their job to maintain that access. So the the questions are not going to be as probing or as hard-hitting. And tennis, like, a player can look at the ATP press representative and say, like, are you serious? I don't want to answer this question. Mm -hmm. And that's that. Novak could right? have done that exactly. in that situation. Right, right. To his credit, he didn't. Yeah. But at the same time, I get the impression, my takeaway from that is that he wants to have his cake and eat it too. <laughs> Right. Well, and this he is what the... you have when top players do serve on the players' council. Rafa got sick of the controversy. Federer got sick of the controversy, having to defend his decisions. But, like, that's part of the job. You know, when most of your day is people fawning over you, this is different. And it's probably uncomfortable. The want for transparency, specifically with this issue, specifically with regard to Gimmelstab and who his replacement is going to be, that is warranted. That is valid. And to, to defer and brush that aside as being just the media trying to create some frenzy for a story, I found that very unseemly. Yeah, because that definitely happens. That sort of clickbaity, mm -hmm. dramafied journalism, that happens. But I actually don't think this is it. No. Like, I, I don't think that applies to this here. I think this is very serious. I think that maybe a lot of the people in leadership in tennis are so insulated from social media or from what's going on on the fan level. People are actually 
legitimately upset by this. It's not virtue signaling or any of that. Like, people actually feel strongly about this in a very sincere way. But, but also, let's circle back a little bit for, for, to stuff that we've talked about in this episode. The outrage with respect to Nick Curios, where was that for Gimmelstub for so many people? At, you're talking about people ensconced in the sport. Yeah. Yes. Brad Gilbert, Absolutely we heard from agree. him. So It was, it was mind-blowing. Right. The stuff that Brad Gilbert said on Twitter when he was so hands-off with the Gimmelstub stuff. And, and given that he was somebody who put his hat forward to replace Gimmelstub. Like, the blindness... To the the, yeah. the fuckery is just crazy to me. Uh, he was the one who floated the idea that Nick Kyrgios' interview with NCR could be a finable offense. Although he didn't spell it correctly, obviously. It was findable. <laughs> but I gathered with context clues such, what he meant. Such a mess. You're such a mess. <laughs> uh, no, but... And also the people he gave voice to by quote tweeting them yeah. was like, confounding. It was crazy. Anyway... They they did vote on May 14th and narrowed it down to two candidates for the ATP board, Weller Evans and Nicholas Lepenti, who, if you've been watching tennis for long enough, you know that name, mm-hmm. former player. Weller Evans is famously was famously exposed in that Gimmelstab wedding video as calling Justin the, what, the moral leader of the sport? Or like the moral conscience. conscience. Yes. I did a thread on that way back when, <laughs> yes. in very early May or and late so April. Even John Wertheim has had to answer for that. Weller Evans actually, I mean, he's been in the sport way, way longer than Gimmelstab. He is, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone more experienced. Mm-hmm. He was the executive vice president of player services at the ATP for 15 years. 15 years in the same role. He's worked for the ATP for actually much longer than that. Um, in the 80s, he was one of the tour managers, and he also served on the Men's Tennis Council, which at the time was the governing body of the ATP, before the ATP tour that we know of was established in 1990. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty much his entire professional career has been with the ATP. He is somebody who is very qualified. However, he is the person who said that Justin Gimmelstab <laughs> is the moral conscience it, of the ATP. Exactly. So if that does not call into some kind of question... Your judgment in mm. this specific situation where you're trying to replace Gimmelstab on the back of what has happened. I don't know what to tell you. Right. John Wertheim said on Twitter, he quote tweeted somebody and said when it was pointed out to him that Weller Evans was this dude in this video. He's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but this should not be disqualifying for somebody with such a large and, and extensive resume. Mm-hmm. Which in any other situation, I would be inclined to agree with. But this is bad. Are we trying to distance ourselves from the the legacy, like the stink of Gimmelstab? Exactly. Or not? And is, is 30 years experience what we're looking for? Or what they're looking for? I don't know. Like... Novak was asked, what are you looking for? And yeah. he says, I don't know. It's something we have to talk about. Is it this? Is it's it that? Internal. Is it that? Is it all this? We still don't know. Mm. We're not getting specific answers from anybody, which is why this is continuing yeah. to go on. Uh, folks have been caught so off guard with the, the desire for transparency with this thing that's normally happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some folks say, well, 
where were all you people who are wanting all this transparency when Roger Rashid was kicked off the board? You didn't care about it then, so why do you care about it now? It's like, well, somebody was murdered last week and we didn't care about somebody was murdered this week and care about this murder. Why didn't you care about that murder? That's absurd. <laughs> That's an absurd stance to take. Uh, I would... I would caution against using that metaphor in this specific situation because like there oh, was the violence, violence and... yes that that was bad but you get my point okay bottom line is it continues to be a whole ass mess we don't have a definitive answer we have two people who will still be voted on again at wimbledon to be the yes, final in a runoff the final answer nadal he has said that he would like to see somebody who would be able to represent the Spanish-speaking worlds of tennis mm. on the Players' Council. And so clearly, I would assume Lapente is his yeah. pick if he this got a is, vote. Uh, this is the Americas, mm-hmm. like North and South America representative, mm-hmm. right? So there's no reason it can't be a Spanish-speaking person. Instead of another old white dude. Yes. Because actually some people were saying, well, this is the Americas representative. I'm like, hold, rewind for a second. America, America is bigger than the United States of America. (laughs) (laughs) There's two whole continents there. Oh my God. You know? (laughs) Oy, oy, oy. Um, Before we go, Rome, you know, the tournament director just, he hadn't had enough, hadn't had enough controversy. They decided to revoke Ubaldo Scanagata's press credential late in the week. We don't know if that's specifically the tournament director's uh, decision because well, there's also a person in charge of press. This is from the Italian Federation. He he actually posted the letter he received mm-hmm. from the Italian Federation that was in Italian. And, you know, my very bad Italian skills, the first paragraph explained that, you know, your credential has been revoked because you have been working for a publication that's different than the one that you applied for. That That's the official reason that was given. However, people were speculating because Ubaldo had been very critical of the tournament and how they handled the Federer situation, the ticket prices, uh, the mm. rain delay, all that, that they, there may have been ulterior motives there. There's obviously something else going on behind the scenes because that's total bullshit. And because who is to stop Ubaldo somebody... Is, is such a, a huge figure, like in, a, in Italian tennis? Well, overseas. We right. don't know how big of a figure he is actually within That's Italy. True. That's true. Because we've seen how extensive the media coverage of that tournament is in Rome from watching yes. it on TV there. Right? There's a lot of coverage. But if you are in sight, who is to stop me if I'm being credentialed for the body serve to then go on NCR on site and give an interview or go to somewhere and like collect a five dollars, you know, mm-hmm. for like giving an interview like that. Just because you didn't apply for that publication. Exactly. That seems a. I'm not experienced enough in being on site and mm. being in these situations, and I don't depend on tennis to pay my bills. So I'm not the best person to ask for this. But I can only imagine that this, this is bullshit. Yeah. And, folks. For all the horrendous, misogynistic shit questions Ubaldo has asked in press, he deserved to be revoked for those. <laughs> right. I mean, this is well, one of... That's the thing, right? <laughs> so you have to, you can't take like it, it on a personal level. It's like, can a journalist have their credentials revoked for a reason we find upsetting? Mm-hmm. And, and in this, like, 
did they contravene something very serious in this situation? And I'm not sure. Uh, is criticizing the tournament publicly, like is is embarrassing the tournament publicly a reason that a journalist should not be credentialed for the tournament? In my opinion, no. That's a resounding no. It, like this is That's what, like one of the tenets of journalism. Like journalism, journalists should not be friends of institutions. No. But in this case, we depend on institutions for access. And it puts into relief just how tenuous the credential is for a lot of working media. And so we should always keep in mind when we're being uber critical of journalists on various social media or whatever as to what they're doing and how they're doing it. A, it's very difficult to get paid doing tennis, right? (laughs) And also, it's it's clear now that it can be so tenuous to have your credential revoked. Mm for whatever whim or fancy that the tournament feels. Right. There's no independent body of tennis credentialing that you can then appeal right. to. You're at the mercy of these tournaments and what they want to do. You're at the mercy not only of the tournament, but of the ATP, especially the ATP and the WTA. Mm. I've, I've witnessed that, where the ATP has put in certain restrictions on what you can or cannot do as press. Oh, yeah within the superstructure of the tennis media landscape at a specific tournament. There are many layers and uh, levels at which you can have your shit fucked up. (laughs) I like how you put that. We're supposed to talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah, we can do this quickly. Are you ready? Are you prepared? I'm still very angry. Me too. Uh, Because I've, you know, we've had problems with the show. We've talked about it on the podcast before. But it's been a show I've really enjoyed for the past, Mm -hmm. what, eight eight seasons we were not one of those that were there from the jump no i think we started jumped in like the second maybe maybe we we watched the first season without any spoilers we didn't know that redacted heads was gonna chop off (laughs) because there are a lot of people who are starting to watch it now for the first time shout out isla tomlanovich She she started today but it was disappointing because daenerys targaryen has been Really, like aside from Jon Snow, one of the only protagonists of the series, I would say. Like her and Jon Snow are the protagonists. They're in nearly every episode. We're seeing their their coming of age. We're seeing, especially with Daenerys, like a lot of moral uncertainty. Uh, this like white savior complex that I they earlier in the series problematized better than they have now when they were still like with the books but i just found that the creators or that the showrunners felt like they lost sight of who daenerys was and i don't feel that i feel like if the worldview of the entire series were cynical then what happened to daenerys would have made sense a lot of people hated the final season i was fine with it until the last episode well, the, the fight against the White Walkers was incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, it, the series should have ended there. The Arya Stark jumping up and doing the business was mm-hmm. one of my favorite things of all time. I loved it. And the whole, spoiler alert, Daenerys burning shit down. Burning everything down. <laughs> didn't really bother me as much as it did other people. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's killing children, but like, this is a TV show. You're like, I'm not going to take it that personally. And I understood it. People are saying like, oh, it was so rushed. You didn't really get to understand why she did it. Yes, that may be true. It's only Mm -hmm. six episodes. Maybe we don't get to 
flesh that out as much as you would like. But if you are paying attention to the tea leaves, literally everybody that she trusts with her life has either been killed, died, or betrayed her Yeah. in this time. Yes. And if you're going to say, well, it's all been so rushed, how did this happen? By the same token, it's all been so rushed, it should feel that much more immediate to her. Mm. And so, what is it, Jorah? Jorah, yeah. Jorah, who is the person who she knows loves her unconditionally, would trust mm. him with everything, right? He's dead. Missande is dead. She's lost two of her. That ch- was that was. Rough. She's lost two of her children. Mm. Jon Snow's betrayed her. Uh, Tyrion, Varys, they've betrayed her. All in the service of helping other people and doing things against her better instinct. Right? She could have been on that Iron Throne two seasons ago, had she not been led astray by, let's be frank, all these white men. She almost died helping the North defeat the dead. Exactly. Right. Like and so I I love Sansa. Like, I love me some Sansa. But she was wrong. Yes. Because Daenerys did not have to make a stopover in Winterfell to save her ass from the dead army. And this business... She did not have to do that. This business of, well, why did they turn her into the Mad Queen? I rebuke that. She was not the Mad Queen. She was the Mad Vexed Queen. <laughs> like, I'd be mad as hell. I lost my two children... All these people died unnecessarily, and I'm left alone in this world now needing to rule at the end of this years-long quest to get what I feel is rightfully mine. And the one person left who I should be able to count on, I don't know whether whether to view him as a threat because he's the rightful heir, and I don't know if he still truly loves me anymore. And so she said explicitly, I choose fear, and what does that mean? When all these people who are left who are supposedly innocent are representative of the efforts to kill her like how how would you feel as a ruler in those times this is all fiction Mm. assuming the throne with all these people who a don't know you and you're trying to be nice with them and everybody has two three four five faces (laughs) (laughs) like i mean i get it like the rage took over and she did what she had to do what i really disliked was the stabbing because that was so it was very intimate no i rebuke it it still makes me so mad i'm not saying that's a good thing i'm saying it was very intimate it makes me so mad because like this dude john snow shows you just how little spine he has he's supposed to be this moral center the moral conscience of game of thrones and he's being influenced left right and center into making a decision that he clearly doesn't want to do, that he still to this day doesn't know if it's right. He'll wonder about it the rest of his life. Oh, whoop-de-doo, that's your penance. I don't give a fuck. Meanwhile, this woman, who was like not necessarily on the right path, <laughs> but like somebody, I forget who pointed out to me on Twitter, like at least have dinner and drink wine and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, the, the premise is what I reject, right? Like, the Daenerys that we got in the final episode was very much meant... Like, King's Landing burned out was very much meant to look like Dresden, Berlin. These these European cities after World War II, like, she was meant to look... This was meant to seem like Triumph of the Will. Mm. Like, she was... She was Hitler, right? Like, she was speaking to a people who were very much subjugated. Okay. And she was she was talking about how we have liberated the people of King's Landing. Those people are all dead. 
Like, but the point is I reject that. I don't think that was part of her character. So that the Daenerys that we saw in the show absolutely should have been killed because she had been corrupted deeply. But I don't think that where her character went made sense. I had accepted that she was going to be killed, but the way mm-hmm. she was killed, mm-hmm. I found that to I be mean, I found that to be the worst. And there's a lot of mandom and being a man and manhood that is terrible. I thought that was like the best slash worst representation of fuck boydom. <laughs> See, there was a lot, but there was a lot that didn't make sense. Like, yeah. So Jon Snow, John Snow killed the queen mm. and he, then they let him go. So like Grey Worm let him go. Tyrion conspired to kill the queen. They were like, okay, Tyrion, why don't you lead the, lead the council and y'all just decide on who the new monarch is. The CNN and, town hall, as, right, as it was explained right. on Twitter. <laughs> and so they elected a new king and Grey Worm was like, whatever. Like in what, okay, in what Game of Thrones episode ever could you kill somebody and not face the consequences? Like, that would never happen. They kill people for anything out there in Westeros. It was mad. Right? Ned Stark killed somebody for deserting from the, the Night's Watch in, like, the first episode of the series. They're killing people for petty reasons. So, like, Jon Snow killed the Queen, and they're just like, meh, whatever. Drogon should have it blew his ass well, but, up. But John is impervious to fire, right? Because he's a Targaryen. Whatever. And then blowing up the Iron Throne as some great symbolism. <laughs> like all so these like, people who are giving these explanations of how the dragon is woke. And it's this fight against all these things. Like, I'm not here for it. That shit made me so... It tickled me. The dragon is like the most politically evolved character in the whole series. Yeah, but then that the re- dragon. But that requires giving the writers that much credit, and I don't think I they know, deserve no. it. I'm not even I'm sure so... they. I'm not even sure that was by design, like how we're interpreting it. That's how it was low so depressing. Wow, so depressing. This last episode was. Mm. I don't. Th- <sighs> so upsetting because if so, they reverted to this like, oh, let's just let the the important houses choose the next monarch, and let's just go on. Do you really think that all those kingdoms and Essos and whatever, that the slaves are still free? Now that Daenerys is not there? No, I don't think so. I understand that if, you know, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, that this, like, dictatorship of the proletariat just becomes a dictatorship, period. If they had leaned into that, like, into the very cynical reading of history, I would have appreciated it, but they didn't. They did not. There's also this this conversation that Tyrion has with Jon that eventually, I'm assuming, convinces him to kill Daenerys. Where he's like, you've seen what happens. Like, she's not the person I this. She's not the person I that. Do you think you're safe? Do you think blah, blah, blah? How about we have some accountability for all the shit decisions you made as her hand and giving advice to lead to this point? Mm. We are here because of y'all. <laughs> Talk about character assassination. Tyrion was supposed to be the, the smart, wise yes. one. He had made terrible, yes. terrible decisions. And so we're supposed to accept that she needed to be killed, and I just refuse it. And as a gay, Daenerys Targaryen is somebody that the gays are inextricably drawn to. That is 
we've been pandered to for seven and a yeah. half seasons and to have this happen to us is it's unforgivable i think and that's that it's what what is today monday last monday where were we we were just no where were we we were, we were just getting back to flying rome. into rome flying into yeah. rome crazy mad thanks for listening this is episode 158 we'll be back Probably in less than a week with a preview for the French Open because that's that that should start on Sunday, right? And it's the only major that starts on Sunday. Uh-huh. So we'll probably be back on Saturday <laughs> after the draw comes oh, out. Oh God! My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram at the Body Serve. As always, if you enjoy the show, please let the world know about it. Reviews on iTunes are one of the tangible ways that you can help promote the show and help us gain some prominence of sorts. Those five-star reviews, they add up. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.